Uh, if you want to pull out your bulletin, uh, we are in part seven of our Being Jesus series. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. Finally, we are here at the launch of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to look at all, uh, all the gospel accounts concerning that launch in a very specific and exciting text, which uh, you may have um, read before, but we're really going to get down and under the hood uh, this morning in this text together. As you turn there, and if you want to go ahead and preemptively open your Bible to Matthew chapter 3, that's going to be the... The beginning of that narrative we're going to be in today. I want to tell you all a story as you flip there, a real life story that I think will help frame up what we're about to talk about today. And on a a sunny winter day, not too unlike this one, a man named Scott Bolzan awoke in a hospital room surrounded by strangers. He had a splitting headache and he was wearing a hospital gown and he didn't recognize anyone in the room, especially the concerned petite blonde woman sitting by his bedside. And Scott Bolzan, that day when he woke up, he, he didn't realize how he had gotten to that place, nor did he even remember his identity. And on that morning, as he had arrived previously at his Phoenix office, he had gone into the restroom at 7 o'clock before anyone got there, and there was a pool of cleaning solution on the ground. You can see where this story is going. And as Scott walked in, he didn't see that, that pool, and, and the last thing he remembered seeing was his feet kind of flashed before his eyes, which is a bad thing if you're, uh, if you're falling down to see your feet. And he crashed to the stone floor and smashed his head on the, on, the, on the stone ground. And there was a part of his brain which was never the same again. The blood ceased to flow to the portion of Scott's brain that basically video recorded experiential memories. And in an instant, 46 years of Scott's life were erased. When he woke up in that hospital bed, he no longer knew who he was. And it's crazy because identity is something we often take for granted, right? I mean, if our identity was erased in a moment, I don't know what we would do. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't be leaving this place today. I guarantee that. You'd have no idea where to go next. But, but identity, because we take it for granted, is something we should focus on more. And, and thinking about Scott's story, here's what's amazing, is that this guy whose accolades included an NFL career, he played for the Boston Patriots. That was back in the day when the uh, Patriots were still in Boston. He played for the Cleveland Browns. He retired. He had an aviation career. He and his wife, who were married for over 25 years, had had one miscarriage, and they had two children, two teenage children. And when Scott got home, he no longer recognized his house or his kids. He had to relearn everything from the ground up again. And for you and for me, that's a scary prospect. And I wonder if you think about that, if that were to happen to you, how would you even begin to put the pieces back together again for your identity? I mean, what are the things that comprise the way you see yourself, the way you even define yourself? And, and if you were to be talking to someone today, if you were to sit down with me in the community hall, I wonder if I were to ask you, hey, who are you really? How would you respond? What would be those things that come to mind? If you think about it right now, think about it. Well, who am I really, right? Uh, you know, you're the person in the mirror today that was uh, smiling and winking on the way out the door, you know, and you came here and you're sitting next to somebody and you probably maybe know that person. You, you have an identity, but if, if you were going to tell me who you are, where would you begin? You might say, well, I'm a teacher or I'm a businessman. You might say, well, I'm a husband or I'm a father. I'm a, I'm a wife. I'm a mother. You might say, well, I'm, I'm a daughter or I'm a son. I'm a student. For some of you, you know, you could say, I've got some, some accolades, I've got some wonderful things that have happened in my life, I've got some accomplishments and some achievements, and for others of you, your identity is more based on the, the failures, the things that you haven't done, or the things you wished you had never done. But all those things, all those pieces of our identity come together to make up who we are. And as we look at uh, this world today where identity is such a precious thing, I mean, it's uh, been in the news a lot recently how vulnerable your identity can be, especially if you shop at a certain store with a red bullseye, okay? So so, uh, it's a a crazy thing out here, you know? And so what do we have today? We have identity protection. We have these services to help protect our identity. But but what's crazy is is that when, when we as people, as humans... As we, as we walk through life not guarding our identity, there's a thief that would want to come to steal and destroy and to take away what, what God has given us. And if you're a believer in here today, if you've got a sense of God's word, God's given us a clear picture of who we are. But Satan wants to come and in, in moments of our vulnerability or temptation to take those things away. And it only takes an instant. I mean, in, in, a, in a split second, a person whose whole life has been defined by, by honorable life and, and responsible living because they see one shiny thing that that person or that opportunity 
for ill gain. And, and all of a sudden, they can, they can muck a lifetime worth of faithfulness for this one thrill, this one opportunity, and say, oh, well, it's just a drink. It's just a quick look. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to bother anybody. And they, in an instant, change the trajectory of their life. For some people, it's not a quick thing. It's a slow burn. It's a slow fade, whereby you're worn down by the concerns and the trials of this life. It could be your health that was, that was something you took pride in, that you were healthy and strong, is all of a sudden taken away from you because you're diagnosed with an illness, and you're frustrated. Or it could be a loved one who, who's in that same circumstance, or maybe even is, is lost through some tragedy, and all of a sudden your world is turned upside down. And the pain and the heartbreak of that broken relationship or whatever it is that you carry, that burden you carry over time, you get weary and tired and you don't know if you can go on anymore. You don't know if the identity you want to continue to pursue is that patient, loving, faithful person because maybe you deserve something different. If you listen to that, that voice of the enemy, maybe it's time that you got a little pleasure for yourself or maybe it's time that you went seeking a new life, a fresh start and leave the rest of the, the, rest of the stuff behind to figure itself out. These are the stakes of identity. And what happened to Scott Bolzan is he lost his, his memory that day, this amnesia that, that affected his life and effectively erased everything he had known before. We don't suffer from in a physical level, but on a spiritual level, spiritual amnesia is something we all, we all deal with as Christians. Something that everyone in this world deals with because identity is constantly in question. Every commercial, everything the world says to you, every message that you hear is you're not complete or you need this, or if you would just get the applause or the attention of this group of people, then you'll be whole. You can see how this, this puts us in a perpetual place of, of tilt. We're never quite right, never quite satisfied, never quite secure in who we are. And, and I would tell you today that if you're in that place, that Jesus has some words for you. And God shows us an example in the way that he loves his son, Jesus, and validates him and identifies him with the Trinity, with the holy Godhead that we can learn from today. And if we, if we embrace these things, we can walk out with a secure identity. But the stakes of this game are quite high because we cannot afford to walk out of this place still wondering, still leaving it to chance how we'll define our life. And if you have your outline today, I've got a couple of propositions for you, I think, um, as you kind of hang your thoughts on, uh, on these words today, hopefully, and you can process these at home or in your small groups this week. But the first, the first proposition would be this. Who you believe you are will dictate how you decide to live. Our belief dictates our behavior. Our theology often can be even affected by the way we believe that life should function. We'll even change our view of God. We'll edit the truth of the, of the Bible to validate who we are. And so we have to walk out of here with a crystal clear understanding that, that who you believe you are will dictate how you decide to live. And if you're believing that you're a failure, guess how you're going to live? Defeated. If you believe you stand no chance in defeating that temptation which plagues you, that you might as well just give in, guess where you're going to live? In constant defeat. If you believe, however, that you have a, an identity, you have a heritage, you believe you're a co-heir with Christ, if we believe what the Bible says, we're going to walk out here believing those words that you are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, how would you rather live? I want to walk out of here firm today in that understanding, that identity here, because ultimately it's not our Facebook profile posts that define who we are. I mean, how much projection, how much... How much deception is in even the way we present ourselves to the world that it's all good and it's all gravy and I'm always standing next to this place. Click, you know, beautiful, wonderful life. I mean, that's not how my life looks behind the scenes and I'm sure that's not how your life looks behind the scenes. But why do we constantly put that self out there? Because we're trying to, trying to trick the world into thinking that we have an identity and really when your head hits the pillow at night, and you consider the sum of your life and your dreams and your pain and your experience, I bet you there's some times when you doubt that those things are true. And I bet you there's some times that you wish that someone knew how it really was in your life, who could see you there, accept you, embrace you, and help you walk into a better reality. And that is where God enters the picture. And in the Gospels today, we see that Jesus has a defining moment in his life that, that changes him because he allows God to define his identity. And in your life and my life, today is that day. Today is our defining moment. And so if you would look with me in Matthew chapter 3, we're in a blended 
gospel study. And that means that we're looking at the whole compilation, the tapestry of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel witnesses, to get sort of a, not just a three-dimensional, but even a four-dimensional picture of Jesus' life. We want to understand the happenings of his life and in as much as we can put together the chronology and the happenings and the details. And that looks like a blended gospel study. Lance was passionate about that, that he wants to, to look at all the angles. And that's why you'll find us uh, threading these things together. And uh, as we do it, it's going to be a little bit hard to track along. Uh, there's a, a website, actually, that uh, I've been using. It's an app for an iPad, um, or you can look it on your phone, parallelgospels.com. Don't go navigating there right now. You might go to a football game accidentally, okay? So, but if you want to pull that up, it's a really cool thing. There's a, a, it's a harmony of the Gospels. It, it puts the side-by-side comparisons of those texts. But today we're going to do it for you on screen so you can track along. And the way we've got it arranged is Lance has gone through, and uh, we kind of talked about the chronology, and then Lance sat down and, uh, and mapped out. This is sort of the, the Han harmonized version of the Gospels, okay? And uh, we're going to go through this together and understand uh, this picture here. And so as we look at this text here, uh, what you're going to find is the green text represents the gospel of Mark and the orange text represents the gospel of Matthew. And since the bulk of it's in Matthew chapter 3, uh, for starters, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And, um, or you want to follow along on screen, that's great too. But let's dive in today to what the gospel says and let's see this defining moment in Jesus' ministry that launches his ministry into action. This is where it all began for Jesus' ministry. Let's read along together. In those days, then, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is John the baptizer. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So by way of context, as we pick up here, last week we talked a lot about John the Baptist, who he, who he was, how he came to be on the scene, and the fact that, that this crazy dude in camel's hair walked out of the wilderness, which is significant. He didn't walk out of the religious system, which is kind of corrupt and was legalistically oriented. He didn't walk out of the political system, which was also corrupt and you know, was brokering for power. John walks out of the wilderness apart. He comes anointed by God, basically in prophetic power. And after 400 years of silence, there comes a person on the scene who's empowered by the Spirit of God and who is speaking God's truth and calling God's people to repentance. If you missed that message last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was a wonderful picture. And and Lance really did a great job explaining the ramifications of John's baptism and why he did what he did. But in a nutshell, I'll just tell you this, this piece. is John was calling the Jewish people people whose identity was in the law, was in their, uh, their heritage as sons and daughters of Abraham. He was calling them, the ones on the inside, to repentance and to be identified in baptism, which was a, was a convert thing. It's something that a God-fearing, a God-fearing uh, person would come from the Gentile world and they would be baptized into this Jewish faith. And now John is baptizing those on the inside. He says, you need to repent, Jewish people. You need to turn your heart towards God because I'm preparing a way. For the Messiah, I'm making straight the way of the Lord and repentance paves the way. And so he's preparing the hearts of the people to embrace Jesus who's soon to come and he knows the time is soon. And so this is what John's doing. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, there's, there's a movement going on. There's momentum in the nation of Israel and it's exciting. And Jesus ventures down, it says, from Nazareth of Galilee. If you look up here on the map, on the screen here, if you can't see it uh, at home, I'll describe it to you. But uh, the, the basically in the northern section of Israel, we have this region called the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee region. And so the Galilee region, uh, I'm from the Midwest, and I know a lot of y'all out here in uh, California kind of think everything in the Midwest is like kind of hickey and southern and rural or whatever. Uh, and uh, so, so for you Californians, this is probably like the, the Midwest or the South for you, okay? I mean, uh, God loves West Virginia, but West Virginia doesn't have a great reputation across the, across the nation. Why? Because it's, it's kind of down home. I mean, I like Duck Dynasty as much as the next guy, okay? And so, but if you think about, you know, the South, if you think about kind of this redneck culture, these, you know, get her done people, that is the Sea of Galilee region. Not high in the education department, but definitely uh, high on the, the skilled department. These are skilled laborers, and these people are working in. the the working class, but they're separated from the political religious scene of the south in Jerusalem. So here we are, and Nazareth is over there just tucked away to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus grows up. 
an obscure small town and he's just a carpenter's son and for the first 30 years of his life nothing remarkable really happens there's no piece of his ministry that's recorded no miracles that we know of Uh, one time he gets lost in the temple uh, when his parents take a road trip down to jerusalem um, and he's found after three days right has anyone lost their kid for three days accidentally and then found them so it's not you know a shining story really but jesus is found where he's found in the temple he's doing uh the work of the lord he's he's talking about the scriptures with the religious uh, leaders he's pontificating with the smart people as a 12 year old so jesus was pretty legit uh, from an early age but nothing's recorded because he's here in nazareth um, being faithful waiting for the time and when john comes on the scene the green light is given and jesus jumps into action so jesus travels from nazareth over to the jordan river which flows out of the sea of galilee if you blow up the map just a little bit further and look at this next map you'll see that uh that we're talking about a pretty small section here, but there's Jerusalem smack dab in the middle and the region around there, the Judean wilderness. This is where John is doing his ministry. And John goes to the River Jordan and Jesus travels between, you know, 40 and 60 miles and he intentionally seeks John out to be baptized. And when Jesus comes on the scene, this is the picture you might have seen. This is a picture of uh, the River Jordan. And if you think about the topography of the Holy Land, the, uh, the River Jordan, if you look at the next slide, is a place where, where the water was flowing deeply. And this is necessary because we're going to see Jesus goes down into the water and he comes up out of the water and he's baptized. The baptism was symbolic of, of a identification and that's fully immersing in. And so this is where John's at. You go, wow, that looks like, a lot like uh, the Central Valley, right? Except with water, which is a nice thing. So, you know, because they, they have arid conditions as well there sometimes. But, but here's, here's this scene. And you can imagine then crowds of people gathered around, a crazy man in camel's hair standing in the water proclaiming repentance. And those people, it's sort of like an altar call, those people whose hearts are broken and realize, you know what? I could keep faking this. I could keep saying I've got it all together, but I need to repent These people broken, ready for change, ready for the Messiah to come. They would come into the river crying and confessing their sins. And John would baptize them. And they would be recognized as this revival movement in the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes on the scene. We're going to look at that little vignette where John the Baptist recognizes Jesus in John uh, chapter 1 next week. But, But we understand from this picture here that Jesus is doing something intentional as he comes to find John. And here's the question we have to ask. We have such a short passage, we can ask some deeper questions this week. And and this question kind of sticks out to me, right? If it's a baptism of repentance that John the Baptist is performing, what is Jesus doing in those waters? What does Jesus have to repent of? And, And furthermore, if you've got some smart friends, you know, or some skeptical people in your life, they might say, well, isn't this just proof to us that Jesus was a sinner and that the disciples, they baptized his record and cleaned it all up and tried to present him as something larger than life because Jesus was really caught up in a narrative that he didn't want anything to do with. He's just a normal guy repenting. Well, we have to have an answer to that. And the reality that we see in scripture and what we understand is that the no place is Jesus accused of sin. In fact, um, consistently, when people want to bring an accusation before Jesus, they got nothing to pin him on. That Jesus has walked in obedience and righteousness here. And so Jesus does not enter into those baptismal waters for forgiveness of his sins because he is without sin. Fully God, fully man. And in Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to flip there really quickly, this is a, a really important passage. We understand the character of Jesus. And the things that qualify him to be our perfect sacrifice and our high priest Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it gives us this picture of Jesus, which is an assurance to us about his identity and his character. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 say this, Since then, we have a great high priest, he's talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so we see Jesus, he's fully man, he's fully God, and he is not immune to temptation. In fact, where do we find Jesus going directly after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness. And Satan takes his best crack at Jesus in his weakest moment after 40 days of fasting. Jesus understands temptation. He knows what it is. But Jesus, because he has a static-free connection to the Father, because he understands what it is to be obedient, he walks in perfect obedience, which makes him the perfect Lamb of God. And so that is our primary understanding here. So if Jesus is, is being baptized then, there must be something else going on. It's not for forgiveness of his sins. 
And furthermore, as he walks into those baptismal waters, it's not just to set an example for us. Jesus is doing something significant. And Jesus, in walking into those waters, he's identifying himself with the nation of Israel in a significant way. You see, a Savior who stands apart from the people is not a very great Savior. I mean, if Jesus stands aside and he's like, hey, you, get on over there. No, seriously, you're a wicked bad sinner. He's like, you're going to want to get on down there. He's helping people, you know, he's got the whole, um, yeah, this guy over here, John, can you just grab him and take him on in there? And he's standing apart, you know, if he's condemning people, if he's pointing them out, this is not the, the Jesus we see. Furthermore, if Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't enter into the lives of the people he interacts with. I mean, we have lepers and tax collectors and sinners. And if he stands apart with the religious leaders and casts rocks at those people, what does it say about his heart for the lost and the hearts he's come to bind up? But if he's coming and he's touching them and he's laying hands on them and the people that that have been proclaimed as unworthy and and unclean, he goes and he, he imparts cleanliness to them. Jesus comes and enters in amongst the people and he imparts to them something they desperately need. And so Jesus has to enter in all the way into our scenario. And while he doesn't sin, he comes and in those baptismal waters as Jesus is baptized and he's immersing himself in this repentance movement, what he's doing is he's saying what you, nation of Israel, could not perform by yourselves, the righteousness which you could not attain to in your flesh, in your sin, I will take upon that burden on myself. I, I, will, I will identify myself with this nation and just as David and as Moses, and as Nehemiah and all these people, these great leaders of the past before had done, Jesus goes before God on behalf of the people and he says, you know what, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the mantle here. I'm repenting on behalf of them and now I'm identifying myself with this move of God, which is Holy Spirit ordained and anointed and Jesus is being commissioned and he's going to go forth from that moment on. So Jesus' baptism, it's one of identification with the nation of Israel. And secondarily, it's one of commissioning because Jesus is about to be sent out to glorious ministry. And we look at Jesus' baptism, those are a couple key things we need to understand because we don't want to sell short what Jesus is doing here. Because really, as Jesus enters those waters, he's, he's committing to the path that God has set before him. And it's a path that's going to lead him down sacrificial obedience and pain and abuse, and eventually crucifixion, and death on a cross. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, God, I'm in. This is Jesus' moment of commitment to God's will and his way. It's really where it all begins. And it's crazy to me that if this is the defining moment here where Jesus is taking upon this burden on himself to go and bear these things for the nation of Israel, to be the representative, the suffering servant that they've been waiting for, the Messiah, you would expect a bigger coronation than this. I mean, you would expect a crowd, right? I mean, I've seen both the Hunger Games movies. I don't advocate them per se, but it's pretty crazy because it, it shows this, this national spotlight on this very uh, crazy, weird, significant event. And the crowds are lined up and people come gawking and there's chariots and fanfare. And if, if the Son of God is coming on the scene and this is going to be the beginning of it all, don't you think it would be like the Olympic opening ceremony? Don't you think that people would come in crowds and there would be angelic hosts and and everyone would be on their feet screaming and cheering and he'd be adorned in his kingly garments but here he is in the wilderness getting baptized by a guy who eats locusts for breakfast and camel hair and he humbly submits to this identity that that god's bestowing upon him and it's amazing that, that this is the heart of jesus and he doesn't need the accolades And unlike you and me, he doesn't need the applause and he's not looking for the credential on the the wall that he's now the Messiah. He just wants to be obedient to the Father. His, His identity is in him. And it's only God's voice, only God's opinion that matters to him. We have a lot to learn from Jesus. So as we as we look upon uh Jesus in his example here, we go on then. So Jesus submits to this baptism, and when it says that he he is doing it to fulfill all righteousness, then we understand in the greater picture that this is necessary and right for Jesus to do this, to fulfill all righteousness, to take upon that mantle and to move forward in God's plan. So reluctantly, although John the Baptist protested because he understood what the ranking system was, you're the son of God. I'm the humble preparer of the way. Jesus says, no, it's got to be like this. And he submits, again, humbly, willingly, 
And he is launched into his ministry. And it's, it's amazing because Jesus' baptism is not like the rest of them. Something significant and miraculous happens. And if you look now, we're going to get a little bit more blended up into Luke and Matthew and Mark together. And so if you want to track along on the screen with me, that'd be great. Or listen along with me. But again, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Jump around if you'd like to, but follow along. It'd be easier. This is what happens then as Jesus submits to baptism. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, behold, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens were being torn open to him. And he saw the Holy Spirit of God descending on him in bodily form like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Wow. I don't know about you, but that did not happen when I got baptized. (laughs) I mean, I was in the sixth grade and I remember a lot of it and I definitely have the picture to show for it. I've got my slicked hair and my braces and my sister and my dad were there and and it did not go down like this. It was a significant event, but there was nothing really um, magical that happened in those waters here. Why is Jesus met with such a a, a divine blessing? Why is God so excited about this? We're going to get to that in a second here, but, but first... We have to understand that there's a difference between the baptism that Jesus undergoes and the Christian baptism that we advocate today. As we are disciples of Christ, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, Therefore go into all the nations and make disciples, teaching them everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is Jesus' great commission. So this is a part of the movement. The the Christian movement is, yeah, we're going to make disciples and we're going to baptize them. And Jesus here, he, he goes down into the water and he comes back out of the water. And so he's recognized um, through identification in this baptism of immersion. But, but understand this, is that what Jesus underwent and what we under, undergo are very different. And John's baptism of repentance and our baptism today are, are in two completely separate covenants. Like Lance said last week, John was Old Testament. John the baptizer, though we find him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're like, there's the page right there. It says the New Testament. You flip it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You're like, this is great. Now, how am I supposed to make any sense of the Bible? It's so confusing. It's actually not that confusing. All you need to know is that Jesus came to implement the new covenant, to bring the new deal. He fulfilled the old. He brought the new. But as Jesus was enacting this, and you remember at the, at the Last Supper, what does he say? He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He's starting something new, but it's not signed, sealed, delivered, and begun until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You see, before the new covenant can break forth, before the church can be born, Jesus has to die on a cross, be buried in a grave three days, be resurrected, victorious over sin and death. And then Jesus goes, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he tells his disciples before he leaves, wait up, hold on, it's about to get crazy. He said, I'm going to send you, though, my Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper. He's going to come and be with you. And, and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. And sure enough, they wait for uh, that, the time period till the day of Pentecost comes. And then the, the Spirit comes in like a rushing wind. It indwells the disciples. They go out in power, prophesying, speaking uh, in languages that the people in Jerusalem thought these redneck hicks could never speak from Galilee region. And they go out in this power and proclaim repentance. And the repentance is not just for forgiveness of sins. They say, repent, and now you be identified with Jesus. When, when they said, what, brothers, what should we do? We're sinners. We, we missed this Jesus boat entirely. What should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. And, and when you're baptized, he says that your sins are, are washed away and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells and that these things, are, these things are, are starting points, launching paths to the life of Christ and you're embraced in the church. And it says on that day that, that several thousand people were added to their number that day. And so we understand that, that the Christian baptism is very much the New Testament identification with what? With the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's not baptism that saves us. It's faith that saves. It's the moment you place your faith in Christ. It's that relationship we have with him. But, but listen, understand this, because I come from a, a church background where baptism was kind of bullied on people. I don't know if you came from this background before, but, but baptism kind of became a, a point of argument 
uh, amongst people. I remember sitting on a youth group bus. I was driving down to Florida with some of my Baptist friends. I came from more of like a Christian church denominational background. And we're talking about the importance of baptism. And we're arguing about the thief on the cross. <laughs> well, can the thief on the cross be saved? Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. But was the thief on the cross baptized? No. Well, what happens to him then? We're going, well, this is, it doesn't even matter. That's all Old Testament anyway. Furthermore, we can't argue and split hairs about this. Hear me when I say that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? That is what salvation is. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we do so, as we place our faith in Christ, we begin to walk a path of obedience. And so baptism then is one of the first uh, demarcation points in the life of a believer. It's a proclamation that says, hey, I'm in. When people in the book of Acts came to faith, they said, man, I want to put my faith in Jesus and where's some water? Is there a puddle? Is there a creek? Can we find some water? I want to put my faith in Christ right now. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch jumped off of his chariot and was baptized in a creek, kind of like we see the the River Jordan, because he he understood that he wanted to be identified with Christ in that way. And so hear me when I say that baptism does not save. We are saved by grace through faith, through Jesus Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast. That's our foundational understanding. But when we say baptism, ah, whatever, we're really missing out on a blessing because baptism has always been a beautiful and symbolic, unifying, line-in-the-sand moment for Christians. And if you were here for our last baptism out front, it's a beautiful thing. It's a community celebration when people come and they proclaim their faith in Christ. And, and oftentimes, you know, they let us uh, and hop in the waters and, and do the honors of baptizing, but husbands and moms and, and fathers and sons are, are submitting to Christ in baptism. And there's tears and there's something significant about that identification still. Don't discount that. Don't think that it's unnecessary or that somehow you're discrediting your faith. No, because if we're walking in faith and obedience, we do what Christ says to do. And it's a beautiful opportunity we have to be identified with him in baptism. So if you meet anyone and they're, they're having this conversation with you, wow, well, why should I be baptized? Why do I have to be baptized? The question is not why should I, but why shouldn't I be baptized? It's a beautiful, a beautiful thing, and it's always a celebration. And when there's spiritual amnesia breaking out in the church, which Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6, Paul points to baptism. He says, hey, don't you remember that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death to sin, and therefore you're recognized with his victorious life. So he points back and says, yeah, baptism is, is normative, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's a, a wonderful thing. And so if any of you uh, have been bullied by baptism, understand that, man, baptism is a wonderful opportunity for you to place your faith in Christ. And you don't need to wait for perfect life or perfect obedience or a three-year track record of sinlessness. Man, obedience is what we do when we respond with what we know from what God has revealed to us, and we walk into that. And so I encourage you, if you've been waiting, if you've been bullied by baptism, understand that it's only, it's only a wonderful and beautiful thing. And if you put your faith in Jesus, that it's a, a great opportunity to be identified with him in a special and biblical way. I'm kind of passionate about baptism. Sorry that that was a, <laughs> that was a rabbit trail, but it's hopefully something that helps you understand kind of our spirit and our heart about baptism here. So when, when people ask you, have you been baptized? What they need to ask you, first of all, is, hey, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Are you following him with your whole heart? And the baptism thing comes in later, that, that obedience factor. So there we go. So as we move on then, we see that, that, first of all, Jesus and all those people are baptized. And we find Jesus in coming up out of the waters. And it says in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke points it out that when all the people, people were baptized and Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, I've got to point this out because Luke, he takes these little vignettes, he takes these snapshots of Jesus in prayer at all these important moments. At his baptism, Jesus is in prayer. At the transfiguration, Jesus is in prayer. Before he selects his disciples, Jesus is in prayer. (laughs) People, Jesus is God's son, and he has to pull over this much in his spirit-ordained ministry. How often do we need to pull over in prayer to get guidance from God? So so Luke uh, includes that because Jesus sets for us an example here. And and as Jesus is praying, because God hears our prayers, Miraculous things happen. In this posture of obedience, God does something amazing. And it says, let's, let's look back again at the text, the second half. And it says, and behold, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open to him. 
So what is this? What is this about? These heavens being torn open. It's literally the Greek word. It's like my favorite Greek word ever. Schizomani, okay? It's a, that word from schism. It's split. The heavens are split open, okay? I sometimes wish in worship that God would, would split open the heavens. Have you ever imagined this before as you're worshiping God? We worship God in these funny industrial buildings and these things, you know, these dark rooms. And sometimes I just, I just think if Jesus were to come back right now, I hope he would, he would split open. He'd peel the roof off this place. He'd break in as he comes in glory. And as the heavens are split open, we see this is the first of three supernatural signs that vindicate and validate who Jesus is. This is God speaking identity. And he says, as he splits open the heavens, he's basically saying, heaven is breaking forth. Right now, the the veil is being removed. Uh, Jesus is coming and something significant is happening here. Ministry and kingdom power is breaking forth in this moment. And what's crazy is we see the second thing is, is that the heavens are split open then. And what do we see? We don't see the armies of heaven descending. We don't see lightning bolts and thunder and all this insanity like an X-Men movie. I mean, what we see is, is that the spirit of God descends on him in bodily form like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus. I I used to like to watch um, He-Man as a kid. I'll confess to you. I even had He-Man pajamas right down to the underwear. I was a He-Man fan, okay? And when it was time for for He-Man to to go from his mild-mannered self as the prince, and he would turn into this powerful, you know, larger-than-life figure, he would raise his sword in the air, and he'd say, by the power of Grayskull, you know? I have the power! And, like, lightning would come and fall, and he'd be all lit up in his strength. And, And God totally could have done that here. I mean, the story, how powerful would that have been if Jesus is now glowing and you know, he's got matrix powers and he blows everyone away, you know, and he parts the Jordan, walks back on the other side dry and begins to go into his ministry. But here's what's significant about the fact that the spirit doesn't come in this miraculous moment. It comes in the gentleness of a dove descending. And again, it's not a literal dove, but think about a dove. A dove is, is innocent. A dove is gentle. I mean, a dove could not hurt a fly. As the spirit descends like a dove, it's a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of gentleness. And while John was proclaiming, the day of the Lord is near and the axe is already at the root of the tree. Jesus, when he comes, he's anointed with the spirit from God. And this anointing recognizes him as Messiah. And it's not, again, an electro zap of power. It's a gentle picture of peace that Jesus is coming to bring the peace of God to the world. And how desperately do those people, the broken the rejected, how desperately do they need that peace and that love, that touch from Jesus? And we see that, yeah, there's all authority and power in that moment as the Spirit descends upon Jesus and he's anointed and empowered by God for ministry. But it's a ministry of, of obedience to God. And Jesus is every bit dependent upon God for, for his, his power and for his words and for his actions and miracles. Jesus models for us the life that we should live as we ourselves try to follow and be Jesus And so because Jesus is anointed then, just as the prophets of old were anointed and the kings of old were anointed with the spirit of Jesus, who is God incarnate, is anointed in this moment. And I don't know to what degree or quotient Jesus' effectiveness and power was increased because Jesus is fully God and fully man. I think he was aware of his identity before this moment. I think that he was walking in static-free relationship with God, but, but God empowers him in this very visible, significant way to say, this is him. This is the anointed king and Messiah. And then this most beautiful thing happens as this third supernatural sign is given. God the Father confirms Jesus' identity. And it says, And behold, a voice came from heaven and said, And you think about this. If you have imagined hearing God's voice, and we've all prayed it, God, just please speak to me. I don't care if you, you know, scare the daylights out of me and and I am a wreck and just a heap in the thunderous power of your glory and your holiness. I just want to hear your voice. And we wonder, what did God's voice sound like in this moment? Was it, this is my son? You know, I, I wonder, he's like, he takes the megaphone of heaven. Hello, everyone. Understand these words. I don't think it was just, I don't think it was like that. I don't think it's with the spirit of the moment or the intimacy that God has. I think if, you, if you've ever been wrapped up in the arms of a loving parent before, in the arms of a father or a mother who really cares about you. And I realize that, that many of you have never had that experience before, but, but you can imagine, you've seen it before. But sometimes when a parent wraps up their kid in their arms and they say some words of, of validation and identity and pride, that it doesn't come out in a yell, it comes out in a whisper. 
And I think as God splits the heavens and as the, the dove gently descends, you know, the spirit descends like a dove, I think that God, when he spoke those words, I think he said with, with pride in his voice, this is my son. He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And in that moment, Jesus' identity is now full. I mean, his cup is ready to go because he has received affirmation, identity from his father. And in, in a fatherless generation, in a, in, a, in a world where family has been so broken, understand that our Heavenly Father wants to bestow identity to His kids. He is capable, and He is loving, and He is he's longing to see you embrace your identity in Him. And Jesus, in this moment, we hear, when He hears those words, it's the Father approving Him. And catch this, okay, because this is important. Because this isn't just a summation. There's a few Old Testament verses. It's uh, Psalms uh, chapter 2, verse 7, where God addresses the king in the psalm as his son. So there's a messianic tie-in there. There's also in uh, Isaiah, in chapter 42 through 53, this, this, uh, this anointing, this, with my servant, I'm going to be well pleased. God's saying those things for sure in that moment. There's some tie-ins to Old Testament significance. But here's what, here's what just wrecks me, is that what Jesus had done up to that point in his life and ministry as recorded in the Gospels, was what? Nothing. Nothing that we know of. Quiet, humble obedience. Jesus didn't climb Mount Everest and put a little cross up there, you know, and mark his territory. He didn't, you know, fly around the world and abuse his, his, his supernatural powers. Jesus walked in humble obedience as a carpenter's son in an insignificant town in the middle of nowhere. And God comes to him and he says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So what does this teach us about God? What do we learn then as we look at, at Jesus being poured out this love and acceptance by God? Understand that, that when God speaks these words of encouragement to Jesus, that it's, it's meant to, to show that it's not based on what you do, but who you are that matters to me. Your identity is based upon what I think about you, not what the world around you thinks. You see the difference there? It's important, and, and this is crazy because in this one moment of lightning bolt power, the Trinity really comes together here. And Jesus, as he comes up out of those baptismal waters and the Spirit as it descends and the Father as he speaks, we see this, this beautiful convergence of the divine Trinity. And this is an amazing experience here. And Jesus is filled up to the, to the brim with identity. And, and if you have your outlines there, I want to make sure we don't uh, miss this one outline. I like to save the big one till the end. So, But the, but the understanding here is that Jesus does not do ministry alone. We try to tackle life alone. Jesus does his ministry in community. This is where Jesus' identity is. It's not in himself alone because he exists with God in community. And that, that thing is called the Trinity. That's one God, three persons. That's what the Trinity is all about. And when we think about the Trinity and we think about how can we wrap our brains around the fact that God is one being with three persons I mean, have you heard the different analogies before? We talk about, oh, well, it's like liquid and it's like gas and like solid. And we, we come up with these things to try to describe and put our, our brains around God. Well, that, that's not something that we have been um, really empowered or equipped to do in our smallness. But, but I, I found a quote that I like that speaks of the Trinity that helps us understand how do we look at this significant moment when God comes near to his son in this way. And we see this beautiful picture. And listen to these words. When speaking of the Trinity... We need to realize that we're talking about one what and three who's. The one what is the being or essence of God, and the three who's are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We do not dare mix up what's the what's and the who's regarding the Trinity here. And so we understand then, this is a very simple explanation of the Trinity, but it will do for today. Within the one being that is God, there exists three eternally co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there was never a time when, when God uh, did not exist as God. There's never a time when Jesus was not Jesus, when the Spirit was not the Spirit. And these, these three persons who are part of one being, they don't exist in inferior levels. I mean, Jesus, sometimes we put our arm around him and say, hey, buddy, yeah, this is Jesus, he's my buddy, you know. We kind of like discount him a little bit. And the Holy Spirit, we'll put all, the Holy Spirit in a closet and lock the door sometimes because the Holy Spirit we just don't understand. But, but what we need to find is that they're not inferior to one another. They play different roles. And they're each one important. The one personage and three roles and the one divine mission here show us that Jesus does his ministry out of this confirmation because he's the, the, the Messiah King anointed by the Spirit and blessed by the Father. And so 
understanding all this then and going back to understanding that that jesus in this moment receives that identity from god he doesn't earn it he receives it there's there's something i want to make sure we, we we drive home today in god's kingdom that's what we see here god's kingdom unfolding in god's kingdom identity is not earned it is bestowed this morning you need to understand that god wants not to give you his checklist so you can live up to the identity he has for you he wants to bestow upon you an identity this morning this is your defining moment with god to understand that he has already done it all jesus has already done it all cease your striving cease your straining understand that right now god sees you and he knows you and he's ready to bestow upon you even more a clear picture of your identity today and think about this okay if if your dad is king what does that make you if god our father is the king then what does that make us We are sons and daughters of the king. Our identity then comes from God the king and he gives us then his authority and equips us with his power to go out and to do his work. And this is what we see Jesus modeling for us. And it's only after then we receive our identity, our authority and our power from God that God sends us out to do his work. And it's out of that clear sense of identity that we can do ministry faithfully. And I'll tell you, being a pastor is a weird, weird thing. (laughs) I mean... Standing up in front of a group of people and talking to a group of people, you know, and trying to, you know, put aside all the different things that cross your mind in, in a fleshly way, that is a, that is a difficult thing to do. Because if I, if I was to base my value or my identity upon the number of people we can put in a room on a Sunday morning or the amount of likes I get on a podcast, man, I'm going to be a slave to the wrong thing. My identity is in completely the wrong place because I'm basing my identity upon performance. And that's not... What, what I see in the scriptures. And so daily, I have to align my heart and my mind and my life with God. I'm going to care about what you say, God. I'm going to care about who you value me to be and not let the world dictate that because our hearts can go askew so quickly. And that spiritual amnesia can come in and it can rob us and we can begin to think, oh no, and we claw and we clamor, wait, God, pay attention to me. Or, oh no, you know, my, my relationships are falling apart or oh no i just got fired i can't take that lesser job i got to take that that better job i don't want to i don't want to lower myself and for people to look at me in this way and we start to scramble and we start to fret but understand when you get your identity not from what you do but from the the, the way god sees you the things he says about you then we can live out a place of confidence then we can live out of a place of authority not in ourselves but in god and understand this god is the only one who is worthy to define who you are and who you're meant to be. God is the only one who is worthy. Only his voice matters in the grand scheme of eternity because guess what God knows about you? God knows something that no one else really does and can appreciate because God knows that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you understand that that God knows how many hairs are either increasing or decreasing on your head? (laughs) He knows that. That God understands that he has made you and he's, he's gifted you and, he, and you're precious in his sight. And when we look at the world around us and say, man, I just wish I could get some more likes on my posts. Or man, I guess I wish I could get more attention at work. Or I, I wish my, my spouse or my kids would appreciate me more. What are we doing? We're trying to base our value in, in the things of this world. And guess what those things are going to do? Fail you every time. Eventually the bottom will fall out. And, and when that thing is taken away, where will your identity be? And that's the question we have to ask as we conclude this morning is, is simply this. If, if we haven't had that defining moment with Jesus and Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, what do we need to do? Deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow him. It's not just a one-time thing where you, were, you came to faith or you, know, you had those, that, that exciting, exciting moment in the baptismal waters and now your identity is clear. No, every morning when your feet hit the ground, it's a defining moment. Who will you live for? Where will your identity come from? And if you're allowing the the things in this world to define your identity, if you're allowing your past and what your parents said about you when you were a kid to define your identity, man, how how long are you going to let that pain subsist in your life? If you allow what your friends said about you growing up, the names that they called and the wounds that they inflicted, or those relationships, the wise ones and the foolish ones, and the, the consequences therein, if you allow... The, the record of your favorite football team to dictate your happiness. There's a lot of people going to be disappointed today. 
And I'm not saying who they are going to be, but I'm going to tell you that it's not a great way to live your life, that if your family has to cower in your presence because your football team lost, okay? You might have an identity problem at that point in time that needs to be rectified because it's just a game. But, but understand your salary, your, your past mistakes, what your failures say about you. We allow these things to own our identities, our disappointments. We allow them to tell us who we are. But how you see yourself will dictate how you live. So therefore, how do you need to see yourself? And that question is answered in this question. What does the Heavenly Father say about you? If you look into God's word and anchor yourself to his truth, what does the Father say to you? What would he say today if he were to split open the heavens and to give you that that voice, that loving voice today and whisper these words? I think it would sound something like this. I think he would say, I love you. I think he'd get choked up when he said it because he gave everything he had to make you his own. I love you. I love you. I think he would say that that I made you. So don't call yourself worthless because I made you in my image. You have worth. You have value. I think he'd say, I have a purpose for you. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future if you walk with me. I think he would say to you that you are more than your failures. You're more than the condemnation that the enemy throws at you. You're more than your susceptibility to temptation. You're more than that. You're more than your report card or your quarterly evaluation. You're more than your position or your paycheck. You're more than your race or your age or your economic status. You're more than your political affiliation. You're more than married or single. There's more to you. And, and, and when you're running towards these other things and, and running from me, you're missing out on life. And so the Heavenly Father calls us today to hear these words. You are my son. You are my daughter. And all your failures and all your shortcomings and that gap you feel, God comes all the way to meet you and to hold you today and to equip you with an identity to walk with him. And we only need to believe. We need to take hold of that by faith today and anchor ourselves to that in God's word, in this community, and together remind ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ of the great and glorious future that God has for us. Because we are saints. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We're a people belonging to God. And when we understand that and live that way, then being Jesus in this world truly is possible. And changing the world around us through God's power, anointed and equipped by him to go out and do ministry, is possible. And God takes meek people like you, like me, and does amazing things. Wouldn't you like to see that happen in your life? Wouldn't you dare to believe that today with me? Wouldn't you... Wouldn't you dare to ask God to confirm that? Let's bow our heads and pray today and ask God to make those things so in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Let's pray. Father God, those words are precious and those words are sweet on our lips. God, you are sovereign. God, you're above. You see, God, above the rat race. You see above our our concerns and our fears and you see the, the full picture. And that makes you the best and only guide. God, we don't want to be subject, God, to sin and to flailing and the insecurities of this world, God, to the, to the thief that would come to destroy in the night. God, we want to be rooted and established in who we are in Christ. God, would you remind us today? Take us back to that moment when we put our faith in you, God, and when you bestowed upon us an identity, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance through the Holy Spirit. God, power to overcome sin and darkness, a, a name to cry out, Jesus, which is powerful to save an identity to walk in in victory and not in defeat, God. Remind us of that day. And as a people, as we, as we leave this place this morning, God, just help us to put our faith not in ourselves, God, or our strength, but in you. Allow us to define ourselves every day by what you say as you whisper words of guidance and encouragement and affirmation to us, God, every day. So whether we write those words on our mirrors, God, or we put the, those reminders on the dashboards of our cars, help us to be people who live in the calling and the authority and the identity of what you've given us in Jesus Christ so we can be Jesus to the world around us. We love you and we thank you for that invitation and that equipping, Father. And we just only want to hear those words from you. Well done, my son, my daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. We know with Christ it's possible. We love you. We thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.